You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello, and welcome to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast series. Today, as it's the start of a new year, I'd like to take the opportunity to look at some of the key themes that we think are going to be issues for employers over the course of 2020. And to assist me with this discussion, I've asked some of the other partners from the Matheson Employment, Pensions and Benefits Group to join me here today. As you'll see, some of these themes are specific to particular sectors, for example, the financial services sector, with the CBI proposal around an individual accountability framework. However, for the most part, the themes we're going to be talking about today apply to all employers under Irish law, irrespective of your size or the sector that you're in. The obvious variable across all of these themes is the Irish general election, which is due to take place on the 8th of February next. And for those of you familiar with Irish politics, you'll know that traditionally our form of government is always a coalition. And over the past number of years, the coalition partners tended to be a mix of either the Labour Party, the Green Party, and some other independent candidates, all of whom collectively tend to have a pro-employee leaning when it comes to employment law. Technically, any of the draft legislation that was on the books up to the point of the parliament being dissolved now falls away. But what usually happens is the next government takes it up again but puts its own slant on it. And my point here in regard to the election is that depending on the strength and size of the junior coalition party and who it is, That will dictate the extent to which any of the draft legislation we're looking at becomes pro-employer, balanced or more likely pro-employee. So the first topic I want to look at today is the proposals by the Central Bank of Ireland to introduce an individual accountability framework. From talking to clients in this sector and from talking to clients in the UK where this type of model has been rolled out over the past three years, This is without a doubt going to be the key issue for employers in this sector over the next 12 to 24 months. For those of you not familiar with it yet, there are four key elements to the overall individual accountability framework. The first is the introduction of conduct standards for almost everybody in the sector. Secondly, there are enhancements proposed for the fitness and probity regime. For example, the CBI will now have the power to investigate and go after former control functions where a breach has been identified in an organisation. Similarly, the CBI would have the power to publish details of an appointment that it has declined, all of which have very significant impacts for individuals and employers. Thirdly, it's proposed to unify the enforcement process, which in essence will make it easier for the regulator to go after an employer and a related employee where a breach has been identified, to streamline that process effectively. And then finally, we have the Senior Executive Accountability Regime, what's known as the SEER. And the Minister has already identified this, in his own words, as the centrepiece of the new legislation. From talking to clients already, it's quite clear that the SEER aspect of the overall proposal is the piece that's going to take up most of the client's time in getting ready for it and in rolling it out and managing it when it's up and running. To look at the core elements of it, firstly, Employers in this sector will now be required to prepare statements of responsibilities for senior executive functions. Really what that involves is committing to writing who is responsible for certain prescribed functions. And the whole idea here is to make it much more difficult for senior managers to 
take the position that, well, I delegated that particular function or I thought somebody else was looking after it. From the point of the year onwards, the CBI will now be able to come into an organisation where they identify a breach and very quickly pinpoint that's who was meant to be responsible for that area, that's where the breach occurred, so how did he or she let that happen? Secondly, the requirements will involve a responsibility map for each organisation. And what this will involve is, again, committing to writing how the various senior executive functions and the prescribed responsibilities interact or map to one another across the overall organisation. We don't have any guidance yet from the CBI, but in the UK, for example, the regulator there eventually published template responsibility maps. And that's something that we would be lobbying for when we get to the consultation stage with the CBI. Senior managers within the regime will also now be under an obligation to take all reasonable steps, to use the wording from the proposal, in regard to ensuring compliance. And the debate already within the industry is, what exactly does all reasonable steps involve? How far does it go? So again, that's something that's going to be on the agenda for the consultation phase. From an employment law perspective, probably the feature that is most concerning for employers is this whole concept of regulatory reference requirements. Under the UK model, at the moment, where an employer is looking to hire somebody into a senior manager role or into a certified role, they must look for a regulatory reference from the individual employee's previous employers over the past six years to flush out any information relating to the new employer's assessment as to their fitness and probity to take on the role. In order to avoid the previous employer answering questions on its own terms in order to downplay certain unhelpful information, so that they don't get into difficulties with the previous employee themselves, the regulator requires that these references must be provided by way of a statutory questionnaire. Now, obviously, no employer should be facilitating a bad apple rolling from one employer to another. But what we've seen in practice in the UK is that this whole regulatory reference requirement has got both employers and employees into hot water in circumstances where the employee may not necessarily have been found guilty of an allegation. For example, where perhaps an allegation was raised, but the employer never actually investigated it or it never reached the point of a conclusion. What's happening now in practice is, as a consequence of this regime, that even where an employee leaves or even where an employee agrees a voluntary exit with the employee in the context of an allegation, the employers are still having to investigate the allegation right through to conclusion so that they can factually and correctly answer the questionnaire if one comes in. When you apply that to the Irish context, where the prevalence of employment litigation is probably even greater than in the UK and where we have the availability of high court injunctions to stop an employer reaching a negative conclusion if the employee believes it's in breach of his or her right to fair procedures, you can see how the exact same regime, if rolled out here, will be even more problematic. And what we know already from commentary is that the Irish regime is going to be broadly based on the UK model. Now, curiously, there hasn't been a single word from the CBI as to whether or not the Irish regime is going to replicate this particular feature. So until I hear otherwise, it's certainly top of my agenda when we would be looking to consult with the CBI in regard to these proposals. If the same practice follows here, and as a result, employers reach a point where they are having to investigate all allegations, then I think we can see three immediate consequences. Firstly, it will significantly impact on an employer's flexibility to negotiate a voluntary exit with an employee, because if the allegation is still going to be investigated anyway, there's no benefit or incentive to the employee to go early. 
Secondly, if the employee is going to have to fight tooth and nail to protect themselves against the negative conclusion in order to protect their reference, well, then disciplinary procedures are naturally going to become even more hard fought and more time consuming for employers. And it's not like it's plain sailing at the moment already. And then thirdly, perhaps related to the first two points, we can expect to see an even greater number of injunctions being taken against employers in the financial services world as employees try and avoid a negative conclusion being reached against them. We don't have any draft legislation on this yet, and the election obviously complicates the timetable further, but I would expect to see heads of bill before the summer. If any of you are interested in more detail in regard to what the CBI has proposed, I've included a link with the podcast to a speech by Derville Rowland, who is the head of financial conduct within the CBI at a Matheson event we ran for the industry last October. Likewise, we'll also be setting up a HR directors forum later on in the year to bring together contacts and clients to update on information relating to the legislation and also to share key trends on how employers are rolling this regime out. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. So now I'd like to hand over to some of the other partners in the Matheson Employment Pensions and Benefits Group to talk about the various topics that they see as being the key themes for employers over 2020. The first of our partners here today is Geraldine Carr, an employment partner in our group. Geraldine's going to talk about the recent case against RTE in relation to an early retirement clause in a contract and how we see this as a key issue for employers this year. Geraldine, over to you. Thanks, Brian. Mandatory retirement ages is an issue that has come into the spotlight again as a result of the recent high profile decision of the WRC in Roper and RTE, our national broadcaster. In that case, the WRC found that RTE had discriminated against Miss Roper. She was a former TV producer in requiring her to retire at 65 and she was awarded 100,000 in compensation. That was equivalent to a year's salary. So, I guess to give you a bit of background on this again, employers can fix a compulsory retirement age under Irish law, but only where the employer can objectively justify it. And to objectively justify a retirement age, it has to correspond to a legitimate aim of the employer and be appropriate and necessary to achieve that aim. So some examples of what might constitute objective justification include Things like health and safety concerns for those in safety critical roles or succession planning, the creation of a balanced age structure, for example, or else intergenerational fairness and encouraging the recruitment and promotion of younger people in the workplace. However, in the RTE and Roper case, RTE argued that their objective justification for having a mandatory retirement age of 65 was to ensure intergenerational fairness. And they said this was to allow younger people within the organisation to progress and to enable RTE to produce programmes that are of interest and relevance to a younger audience. They also maintained that the purpose of the mandatory retirement age is to motivate staff and new recruits through the prospect of promotion and progression. But unfortunately, the adjudication officer took the view that a more appropriate means to achieve the aim of RT could have been identified. They said that Miss Roper's retirement did not deliver the impact to the organisation as a whole that was envisaged by the proposed objective justification. And in fact, they said that the impact only was relevant to the particular department in which she worked. And so 
they noted that there were several other employees also who requested to remain working past retirement age in RTE and whose requests were granted. And that was also very relevant to their decision in deciding that Miss Roper had in fact been treated less favourably and she was awarded the compensation as a result. RTE have since announced that they will appeal this decision, so we're watching this very closely. So in terms of what employers should do now, this should be high on the agenda for employers. We're seeing more and more requests from employees to work for longer and pass their contractual retirement age. At present, the state retirement age or the state pension age is currently 66 and it's due to increase to 67 in 2021 and to increase further to 68 in 2028. There have been some calls for the state pension age to be lowered and indeed one of the political parties in the election campaign are saying that they will lower it to 65 if they come into power. But I suppose what employers should do, first of all, is audit their current approach to retirement. There must be a definite fixed retirement age specified either in the employment contract or in a policy, preferably in an employment contract. And employers should stress test the extent to which they can objectively justify that retirement age. So, for example, they should be able to explain the legitimate aim they're hoping to achieve and the reason why the particular age is appropriate and necessary for achieving that particular aim. And to refer back to the Roper and RTE decision, that aim and the objective justification should benefit the organisation as a whole and should not just have a limited impact, perhaps for a particular department or function. It is important that the employer's objective justification isn't applied on a catch-all basis to all roles in the organisation, but is considered to determine what's appropriate for different roles in the organisation. And a final point I would make is that consistency is key. Any decision by an employer to allow a particular employee to work past their mandatory retirement age whether on a fixed term basis or otherwise, should be considered very carefully because this may undermine the objective justification supporting such a mandatory retirement age in the first place. For example, it should only be facilitated in exceptional circumstances only and where there's a key business reason why that particular employee should be allowed to continue working past retirement age. Thanks for that, Geraldine. I want to hand over now to Niall Pelly, another partner in the Matheson Employment Group. Niall's going to talk about the Supreme Court decision in Nanonagel from last year, but more importantly, where we see that trend developing over the course of 2020 in the whole area of reasonable accommodation. Uh, thanks, Brian. So 2020 is likely to see what is hopefully the final instalment of the saga that has been the, the Nanonagel and daily series of litigation relating to reasonable accommodation and the obligation on the part of an employer to make reasonable accommodations to employees that are disabled. So as many people will be aware, this particular piece of litigation has made its way through the Equality Tribunal, the Labour Court, the High Court, the Court of Appeal, at the Supreme Court in 2019, and now will return for a full hearing back to the Labour Court in 2020. The reason why it's going back to the Labour Court is really on the basis of the the Supreme Court's assessment that it is for the Labour Court to make factual determinations and to apply the law as it has set out through the various cases. So what the Labour Court will really be deciding upon is based on the facts 
and applying the law as expressed by the Supreme Court, whether in the circumstances the plaintiff, Ms. Daly, was subjected to discriminatory treatment by reason of her disability. So I won't go into all the details of the case because that would require, I suppose, a podcast of of its own, which we've actually done before. So you can have a look back on that, both in relation to the Court of Appeal and also the Supreme Court decision from last year. But to recap, the case relates to a special needs assistant who unfortunately had a serious car accident, which left her in a position that she could carry out some, but not all of her former duties. And the case since then has really been to whether or not there is an obligation on the part of an an employer to redistribute roles to other employees so as to enable the employee to come back to work, albeit carry out what is ostensibly a different role. It is now for the Labour Court to determine whether on the particular facts this was uh, an obligation on the part of the school in question. Where the cases have largely surrounded to date is, is the question of disproportionate burden and that was really the focus of the Supreme Court decision whether or not for example the redistribution of of duties would impose a disproportionate burden on an employer. The question that hasn't really been answered to date is whether actually even if these duties were redistributed whether the employee would be in a position to return to the same role or to actually a fundamentally different role. Now, the Supreme Court has pointed to the fact that if it is a different role, then in essence, the accommodation that the school could provide to her would not enable her to return to that role. And so don't actually constitute reasonable accommodations for the purposes of of the legislation. It's all slightly complicated, to be quite honest, and perhaps more so rather than less so as a result of, of the various judgments throughout the different courts. Hopefully, the Labour Court in actually assessing the particular facts of this case to the legal propositions put forward by the Supreme Court can finally provide some practical clarity to employers. Thanks very much, Niall. I want to hand over now to Russell Rochford, another partner in the Matheson Employment Group. Russell is going to talk about the gender pay gap legislation, where we are with it now, what the impact of the election is likely to be and where we see this one developing over the next 12 months. It is a good example of the type of thing where, depending on who the coalition partner is, it can impact on the legislation. Thanks, Brian. Um, In our podcast around this time last year and indeed in 2018, we looked at the proposed gender pay gap legislation, which essentially requires employers to publish information relating to the difference in earnings between men and women employed by them. The government published its proposed gender pay gap bill in April last year and as a priority piece of legislation, it was expected to be passed into law in 2019. However, that didn't happen mainly due to the emergency Brexit related legislation that the government had to fast track for most of last year. So what does 2020 hold for the significant and high profile legal development? Before I discuss that, I just want to provide a quick reminder as to what the bill proposes. It will require employers of certain sizes to publish information relating to the difference in earnings between men and women. And where there is a gap identified, uh, the employers will have to explain why there's a gap and also the measures that they will take to eliminate the gap. Initially, the legislation will apply to organisations with 250 or more employees. 
but this threshold will be reduced over a period of three years so that it will ultimately only apply to employers with 50 or more employees. That means that the legislation won't apply to organisations with less than 50 employees. Gender pay gap legislation has already been enacted in the UK and many other EU member states, as well as in North America. So the delay in enacting this legislation here in Ireland means that we're somewhat behind the curve. That does though afford employers an opportunity to get their house in order before the legislation becomes law. So amongst other things, employers should be thinking about rectifying any unintentional gender related issues. However, the somewhat spanner in the works is the recently announced general election, as that does create some uncertainty around both the nature of the obligations in the proposed legislation, but also when it will be brought into law. That's because there's 320 bills that are currently making their way through the legislative process, which will now lapse because of the dissolution of the door. What that means in theory is that all proposed legislation is scrapped so that a new legislative agenda can be set by the new government that's elected. However, it's normally the case that significant legislation is simply put back on the books by the incoming government and at the same stage of the legislative process. Given how important and high profile this legislation is, we expect that this will happen with the Gender Pay Gap Information Bill. In terms of how quickly it'll then move through the legislative process, at the moment that's unclear, to be honest, but as there's not much detail in the bill to debate, we don't expect it to meet too much resistance in the remaining stages that it has left to complete. It's also important to note, though, that the bill requires the Minister for Justice and Equality to make regulations to effectively implement the obligations on employers as soon as possible after the commencement of the legislation. In other words, and what that means is that the gender pay gap obligations will not actually come into effect until the Minister's secondary regulations are commenced which could happen some months after the enactment of the primary legislation. Between the general election, the inevitable Brexit-related distractions and the machinery of the legislative process, it's unlikely in our view that we will see the gender pay gap obligations on employers coming into law in 2020. Having said that though, the new government may earmark this legislation as a priority for enactment in 2020, but this does remain to be seen. In the meantime, employers who will come within the remit of the legislation initially should take advantage of the inevitable lead-in period and start reviewing payroll and other pay-related data at an early stage to ensure that they are in the best position they can be when this high-profile legislation does actually come into law. Thanks, Russell. The next partner in today's discussion is then Deirdre Crowley. Deirdre is an employment specialist and a partner in our employment group but also a technology and GDPR specialist and a partner in our technology practice. Deirdre is going to talk to us about the whole trend in flexible working, agile working, and where we see that developing over the next 12 months. And we'll also take a look at some of the crossover between GDPR and HR over the next 12 months. Deirdre. Hi, Brian. Yes, I see three issues being of central importance to clients in 2020. In no particular order, the first is working time and the right to disconnect. The second is flexibility and the continuing enhancement of legal entitlements from a European and an Irish point of view. And then the third is the very important issue of the lawful processing of employee personal data and specifically the lawful processing of employee personal data outside of the EEA. So, to turn to the first of those three issues, the issue of working time and the right to disconnect, 
Earlier this year, the European Court of Justice handed down a landmark decision focusing on an employer's obligations to have a suitable system in place to accurately record employees' working time on both a daily and a weekly basis. The practicalities of this requirement in today's digital workplace, where the lines between working time and leisure time are more blurred than ever, have caused quite a stir amongst commentators. The case, which also came from Spain, shows that there is inconsistent practice across different European member states as to how the working time directive in terms of keeping working time records is observed by employers. Here in Ireland, our working time legislation already requires employers to keep such records. This case may not have the same impact in this jurisdiction in Ireland as it will have in other European Union jurisdictions. But notwithstanding this, the reality is that many employers are not aware of their record keeping obligations and compliance with record keeping obligations overall tends to be quite low. So the trend towards more remote and flexible working, reflective of the digital workplace, raises a number of issues for employers, not least of which is the question of precisely how to keep proper records of employees' working time. Practically speaking, the solution here is that employers can download the working time records keeping form from the WRC's website, the OWT1A form, or alternatively can roll out a digital solution to their obligation to monitoring employees' working time. So the bottom line is that this recent CJU decision copper fastens employers' obligations when it comes to recording working hours. So in circumstances where the CJU has already poured cold water on any concerns around the cost to employers of putting in place an objective, accessible system to record working hours, prudent employers are advised to review their approach to record keeping and where it does not comply with the Organisation of Working Time Act here in Ireland, consider taking corrective action now. In terms of the right to disconnect, this is one we'll keep under review on behalf of clients to make sure that any impending legislation which is due to be published on the legal right to disconnect this year in Ireland is balanced, reasonable and proportionate where applicable. Moving on then to the second core issue, which is flexibility and the continuing enhancement of entitlements, we see the continuing pattern of enhanced personal leave rights continuing in 2020. To recap, in relation to five key developments in 2019, we saw the extension of paternity leave to 10 working days of leave for the father of the child around the time of the birth of the child. We then saw parental leave being extended. This is now four months of parental leave from which two months are non-transferable between the parents and are paid the same level of pay as maternity leave. We see carers leave, a new concept at EU level for workers caring for relatives in need of care or support due to serious medical reasons. Carers will be able to take five working days per year. We see again flexible working arrangements coming to the fore, now with statutory right for parents to request these arrangements being extended to include working carers. And finally, then we see parents leave being introduced from October of 2019, which is two weeks parents leave in addition to other types of leave. And parents leave applies only to children born after the 1st of November 2019. And the two weeks leave must be taken within 12 months of the date of birth or the date of adoption of the child. Finally, then we move to the third core issue I see being of relevance to client employers in 2020, and that's the whole question of the lawful processing of employee data internationally. 
we saw a very important non-binding decision from the European Court of Justice Advocate General in December 2019 in relation to whether data transfers between the European Union and the United States are adequately protected when done using a legal template called standard contractual clauses. So the non-binding decision of the Advocate General neither declares these transfers acceptable or rejects them as invalid. A certain level of lack of clarity therefore continues to exist in relation to the lawfulness of the standard contractual clauses in each particular circumstance. What is clear from the decision, however, is that the burden shifts to the controller employer to determine that the standard contractual clauses are in fact an adequate safeguard for the protection of employee data processed internationally. So companies on either side of the Atlantic will find little comfort in this preliminary opinion from the Advocate General. And this issue remains a very hot topic indeed, and one that we're going to monitor closely throughout 2020. Thanks, Deirdre. And now I'd like to invite our last partner into the discussion. This is Deirdre Cummins. As some of you will know from Deirdre's own Pensions Benefits podcasts, Deirdre heads up our Pensions and Benefits practice in Matheson. Deirdre's going to talk about auto-enrolment, the draft legislation, and more importantly, where she sees the whole area of pensions and benefits going over the course of this year. Deirdre, over to you. Thanks, Brian. There are a couple of items that I want to mention on the pension side as we look forward into 2020. I guess the first and probably the most significant from a pensions perspective is a European directive called the IORP2 directive, which when implemented will greatly increase the compliance burden for Irish pension schemes and their trustees. Now, we have been talking about this for quite a while because it came into force in January 2017 and was due to be implemented by Ireland by January 2019. So it's now January 2020 and we haven't seen any draft legislation. So Ireland is very late in this regard. So we absolutely expect to see legislation in 2020 and we expect this will cover the five main areas of the directive. And those are very briefly governance, investment, information for members, cross-border schemes and the principles of prudential supervision. We expect quite a bit of change in each of these areas, which of course in turn will require quite a bit of work for Irish pension schemes in order for those schemes to be compliant. The directive, just to mention as well, also introduces a new concept of key functions for pension schemes. And under the directive, three key function holders are now required to be appointed to pension schemes. These are risk management, internal audit and where applicable actuarial. And I'm only really touching the surface here in terms of the requirements of the directive. And undoubtedly, there will be a lot for pension schemes to do when the implementing legislation is eventually published in 2020. In terms of next steps at this stage, and while I acknowledge it is very difficult to take any kind of concrete action in the absence of legislation, one thing pension schemes could do now is begin to assess their current practices and systems against the requirements of the directive to see how they measure up effectively a gap analysis to see where they stand. They could also look at trustee boards and their levels of experience and education and the composition of those boards. I'll also mention very briefly auto-enrollment, which as you'll know at a very basic level involves taking employees who are not already covered by a workplace pension scheme and basically enrolling them into one. Now, there was a lot of coverage about this in 2019, 
But while there was a lot of coverage, I think it is still fair to say that no concrete action has yet been taken by the government to actually establish an auto-enrolment system. It is still very early days. And we also must remember that we do not know how a new government might approach auto-enrolment. And we should keep that in mind as we're discussing this. If I take you back the original stated objective as set out in the Roadmap for Pensions Reform, which was published back in 2018, was that an auto-enrolment system would be operational by 2022. And we can only hope that a new government will continue to progress auto-enrolment so as to meet that 2022 deadline. In terms of progress then, to tell you where we are to date and what has happened recently, the government confirmed late last year that some key elements of the design of the auto-enrolment system have now been agreed. For example, agreement has been reached on who will be considered a qualifying employee for the purposes of auto-enrolment, the contribution levels payable, the opt-outs available, the fact that it will be done on a defined contribution basis. Having said that, there is still an awful lot that has to be decided. So, you know, we don't know the investment framework or the funds to be offered, the payout phase, the state's financial incentive. So there is still quite a bit of work to be done. And I think we are quite a bit away from seeing any legislation on this. But we will certainly keep you posted as matters progress. So before I finish up, I would just mention a handful of other pension measures to look out for in 2020, such as the new beneficial ownership rules, the Pensions Authority's Master Trust proposals and pension rights for migrant workers. I could go on, but I will leave it at that and suffice to say that I think 2020 is shaping up to be another busy year on the pensions front. That wraps up today's discussion. And as you can see, there's a huge amount going on for employers under Irish law and practice for the next 12 months. And that's only the half of it. There are other topics we could have covered, such as the impact of Brexit in moving European Works Councils to Ireland, and also a more detailed discussion around AI and how that fits into the crossover between HR and GDPR. But for now, I think that's enough for people to be dealing with. Thanks as ever to everybody for listening as we go into our sixth year of the Matheson Employment Law podcast series. We will be back to the normal format in the next episode. And at this point, the kind of cases we have in mind to take a look at are the recent case against Ryanair in regard to restrictive covenants. And we may also take a more detailed look at that RTE decision that Geraldine mentioned. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.